Well, welcome back to the Broad Oak Potty podcast. I'm sitting here with my good friend uh, and brother, uh, Ron Davidson. And Ron, it's good to be back with you again, man. Always good to be with you, brother. Listen, I have been excited um, about this particular uh, episode because we have the pleasure of uh, introducing a dear brother that I think has um, helped us in our um, reading of scripture, understanding of scripture, interpreting scripture, and uh, and that is Dr. Craig Carter, who is the author of two excellent books that I commend, uh, Contemplating God in the Great Tradition and Interpreting Scripture in the Great Tradition. And so, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Joey and Ryan. Would you mind, just for those who might not be familiar um, with you or with your work, would you mind just giving uh, our listeners just a little bit about yourself and, and perhaps even how you got into doing um, some of the, the theological retrieval project, projects that you've been engaged with? Uh, yeah, so, um, well, I'm retired from Tyndale University in Toronto, uh, they gave me the title of research professor. I'm still writing, but I don't uh, I don't teach there anymore. Um, so I was a pastor for seven years. In I was brought up in New Brunswick, Canada, and I was pastor in PEI, which is a neighboring province in Nova Scotia. And I um, then I did my PhD at the University of Toronto under John Webster in the 90s. And um, so I, I studied. Um, Karl Barth was my major theologian. And um, and Webster was a, a Bartian uh, leading Bart scholar at that time, and I stay, I, I did my thesis on John Howard Yoder, who was a friend of my seminary his, church history prof, and he uh, Yoder had studied with Bart a little bit in in Basel along with my church history prof Jerry Zeman, and they um, and so anyway I they had worked together on some projects, and so I I, I worked on Yoder, and. By the time I was finished my thesis, after that I taught at, at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick for uh, a number of years before I went to Tyndale in 2000. Um, so at that time, 2000, um, I was basically a Barkian Anabaptist. I was I had always been a Baptist all my life. Grew up in a very fundamentalist, uh, conservative Baptist church in a moderately leaning conservative Baptist denomination. But um, I was I was pretty uh, on board with uh, with Yoder. Now I wasn't I never was questioning Nicaea or its authority as as doctrine. Um, my my whole idea was that Yoder, by by emphasizing pacifism as the form of discipleship for the Christian, that he was um, applying. The implications of Nicaea to ethics. So this was this is how I I understood the case, and of course he was very much in line with Bart in many ways. So at this time, I I was read I, I published my first book. My thesis was published, then a second follow up book was published, Rethinking Christ and Culture, and then I got a contract um, from a publisher to work on a book on the doctrine of God, and the idea was to write a book on the doctrine of God which um which would talk about 
a relational understanding of God as the basis for social ethics. That was the point. Yeah. I was reading people like Stanley Grenz, John Zizioulas, Colin Gunton, um, all of it, Miroslav Volf. There were a lot of Baptist people, uh, Baptist theologians who were gravitating towards the relational understanding of God um, and toward the idea of, of um, the Trinity as a social trinity, the idea of the trinity as a communion, communion of love. So the, the concept, the, the basic premise of the book was that the, the doctrine of the trinity as communion was the basis for a working out of a social ethic as, um, as love in action. And that was the, the, the idea of, of, that was the central, supposed to be the central idea of, um, of the ethic. So I, Got to work. I, I got a, a sabbatical. I got paroled from administration and uh, got a chance to go sabbatical <laughs> and, and then just come back as a regular professor. And so I was working away on researching the book. And now must understand that um, I went to a seminary that was Baptist. And because it was Baptist, it was not very good on patristics. Um, so I didn't know much about patristics. I had taken church history, but I I had not done anything in the history of theology in, in the in the early period. So as I start to get to work, I come to find out that um, that as I started reading Lewis Ayers and and M. R. Barnes and Khalid Anatolias and John Bayer and Francis Young and all the, the main patristic scholars, I, I discovered a number of amazing things. First of all, I discovered that the whole story being told by Gunton and Zizioulis and so on about the Cappadocians having a social trinity versus the Augustinianism being Augustine being basically a a, a mere monotheist and, and really not having a, a strong doctrine of the trinity because he didn't have this social trinitarian understanding of the Cappadocians. I realized that all of this was basically something that was being read into the sources by modern scholars and it was not endorsed by the uh, by the majority or any really of the the major patristic scholars the second thing I discovered was that patristics is a real academic discipline and by that I mean that um, it's actually uh, it, there's actually progress made there's actually um, a high level of collaboration and joint understanding among patristic scholars about the interpretation of ancient texts these people are not really interested, most of them, in systematics. They're mostly interested in, in, a, in the historical question of what did the early Christian theologians believe. And they go about their work, you know, as if postmodernism had never happened. They, they just do. Their, they do serious uh, textual-based interpretation, and they, they don't disagree in the same like in the same way that modern systematic theologians disagree with each other. If you look at systematic theology in the 20th century, it's all over the map. It's completely, um, you know, people, the different schools, you know, from process theology to liberation theology to feminist theology to um, ref conservative reform theology to Lutheran theology, um, there's hardly any common premises and hardly any uh, common sense of all working on one discipline and, and trying to address the same problems from a, an agreed upon starting point. So, so when you move from the world of, my, of contemporary systematic theology, which is all I had done in the 90s, and you suddenly encounter the world of patristic scholarship, 
it's like it's it's a whole different thing. And, and mm-hmm. I, Ian, you can probably uh, testify to this uh, because it's it's there's a lot more objectivity and a lot more seriousness about um, text-based interpretation. And what we find uh, is that Lewis Ayer's Nicaea and Its Legacy was the key book for me. That was the one that just shook my world. Um, and and Ayer's is is showing that there really isn't any significant difference um, between the Cappadocians and Augustine, and that they are teaching the same Trinitarian doctrine. That pro-Nicene theology around the Mediterranean basin in the fourth century is uh, has many things in common. They have points where they disagree, but the the common base is so significant that it's appropriate to speak of something called pro-Nicene theology. Now, um, so the whole premise of my book was shot. Basically, there was no way to to write that book. And so I basically took a self-imposed vow of silence for about 10 years and didn't publish anything because I felt like I had to reevaluate everything. And so uh, between about 2005 and 2015, I just, I just read, I taught Augustine to my students in my upper level seminars. I taught the city of God. I taught confessions. I taught, uh, Fourth century Trinitarian thought using heirs and primary sources. I I went I kept reading in that area as much as I could. I don't consider myself to be a patristic scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Problem with being a systematic theologian is you have to know Old Testament, New Testament, uh, patristics, um, church history, history of theology, hermeneutics. I mean, you have to know the languages. You have to know Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and it's just so overwhelming. There's so, such a massive material to to get control of that nobody ever masters it. So, um, but anyway, I, I, I felt like I didn't want to say anything more about the doctrine of God until I had um, been able to uh, work hard on, on, on getting, getting the history of the doctrine of God clear. And um, so um, eventually I started writing the book on the doctrine of God, but it got, it got kept getting bigger and bigger and, so here's the here's the problem. I I realized early on from reading Ayers, and this idea never went away, that the church fathers read the Bible differently than modern historical critical uh, yeah. scholars do. And now, um, the, so so the, so I, this had to be like chapter one of the book. It had to be well. If we're going to talk about the doctrine of God, we have to talk about, first of all, how we move from exegesis to doctrine and how the Father did it. And and so chapter one then got, be, got to be part one, and then it kept getting bigger and bigger. And the problem was that um, if I said to modern theologians, contemporaries, if I said, look, um, our doctrine of God, our, the, the, all this social Trinitarianism, relational theology stuff, it's all it's all wrong it, it's 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 incompatible with nicene theology because the nicene fathers read the bible differently than we do and so you know we've got to throw out all this modern stuff i realized they would just say back to me well you know that's because we read the bible better than they do yeah because we're modern we're yeah. we're we're, yeah. we're advanced and yeah. and they're they're kind of uh, sunday school level reading of the bible and then I, I, I realized that before I could even get on to talking about the doctrine of God, we had to address the issue 
of what David Steinmetz in his famous article calls the superiority of pre-critical exegesis. And so that's how interpreting scripture came to be written. It was basically written to, to uh, make the argument that, that if, if we're going to talk about the doctrine of God, we've got to take seriously um, the Nicene Creed. But if we're going to take seriously the Nicene Creed, we also have to take seriously the exegesis that the fathers did in order to come up with what the creed says. And so this means reading the Bible as a unity. It means reading the Bible as a whole. And it re- means reading the Bible from within the rule of faith. And it just, it's just, it means questioning the anti-supernatural bias, but not only that, the an- because the anti-supernatural bias of modern historical critical scholarship is questioned by evangelicals. But what evangelicals don't do is to appreciate the role that metaphysics plays in the exegetical process because they don't understand that that they do challenge the anti-supernatural bias when it comes to the bodily resurrection or the virgin yeah. or miracles, but they don't challenge the modern uh, meta- the modern naturalistic bias when it comes to articulating how inspiration works. Because what they do is they agree with the historical critics that that the meaning of the text is limited to what the original human author meant in the original situation as understood by the original audience. And once they concede that, they are basically adopted a naturalistic approach to inspiration and and a naturalistic approach to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn from the fathers not to do that. So this this is a this is a real um, it's a real conundrum. Like you really have to come to grips with this. Um, and and it, and it's very disconcerting to many evangelicals today because they 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 have been indoctrinated in the concept that if you depart for if you cease to make the original human author speaking in the original situation the sine qua non of meaning then once you step beyond that you step into total chaos a total interpretive anarchy could mean anything this is the brainwashing that it, that is given and um so um what's so anyway that's how interpreting scripture came to be written and then contemplating god grew out of that and i realized that it was the that the that the whole thing is an exercise in retrieving how the church read the bible how the church engaged metaphysics and how the church came to doctrine and that all of these things are integral to the to the project and it's not just a matter of the doctrine of god itself it's a it's a matter of systematic theology itself and i really believe that um, the 20th century is one of the worst centuries of systematic theology in the history of the church. Yeah. And so what we what we need is to go back and retrieve pre-classical theology, metaphysics, and, and doctrine, uh, and, uh, and exegesis. And then we need to do our, do our theological work in the 21st century on the basis of that and basically skip over the 20th and let it, and let it just ride out because it's it's disintegrating. If you look at liberal Protestant theology, it's just falling to pieces. It's, yeah. it's there's no there's no there's no substance left to it, and so um, I don't see it. So I think that there's two ways you can do theology, and, and I call it the liberal project. And what I mean by that is the liberal project is the project of taking classical Christian doctrine and trying to restate it in the modern world in such a way as to um, to, to do it within the context of modern metaphysical assumptions. And what I'm talking mm-hmm. about here is post-Kantian 
uh, assumptions. Um, and, and so there's a liberal version of the liberal project, which is, you know, John Cobb and process theology or who, you know, people who just appropriate Hegel. But then there's a conservative prod, uh, version of it, which is where you, the evangelical church is trying to, to engage in the liberal project, but to make as few revisions to classical doctrine as possible and to be as conservative as possible and yet somehow still engage with the modern metaphysical assumption. And I'm saying the whole liberal project needs to be thrown out. Instead of trying to accommodate to and relate to the modern metaphysics, we just need to say modern metaphysics is false. It, it took a wrong turn at Kant and there's no there's no getting back. We have to go back to classical metaphysics. Well, this is the controversial aspect of the great tradition. And the last book in the trilogy, which has been long delayed, but which is coming eventually, um, Lord willing, is going to be on metaphysics. And it's going to be on why we why we need to retrieve classical metaphysics and what that would look like. Dr. Carter, I, that, I resonate with what, you, what you're yeah. saying there. For, for any of the listeners um, who, you know, may be less aware of some of these distinctions, could, would you take just a moment and define for us or for the listener both what, what your working definition of metaphysics is, because I think it's a very important one, but then, you know, in this phrase that, you, that is utilized in your books, the great tradition, um, what do you mean, and, and you've touched on that already, but what do you mean when you say great tradition? So both metaphysics and great tradition, how, how, how are we to think about those terms? Metaphysics is the science of being qua being. That's the classical definition of metaphysics. But that doesn't mean much to most people. So what we're talking about is metaphysics is the analysis of reality at its most fundamental level. And the way that I think is most helpful to think about metaphysics is that metaphysics is the discipline that describes the relationship of God to the world. And so how does God relate to the world? And metaphysics is a description of how that is. So, so some people think that modernity, the typical move in modernity is to see the world as autonomous from God, as a self-enclosed, self-moving unit. And according to the, the mechanical philosophy that begins with Descartes, that the world operates like a machine. It operates on its own. Well, classical metaphysics didn't, didn't, didn't see that. Classical metaphysics saw the world as participating in the being of God, that, that the world doesn't have its own being. All the being of the world comes from God. And, and the being of the world is not uh, the kind of being that could be there, except that it's being constantly uh, uh, held in place and supported and given its reality by the being of God in which it participates. And this word participation is a key word in Christian metaphysics. It's the, it's the golden mean between two extremes. Um, on the one hand, modernity says the world is autonomous. It's self-contained, self-moving, not dependent on God. On the other hand, uh, you have uh, pantheism, where God and the world really become one, one, one thing. And so participation says the world participates in God because God created the world, but the world is not independent, but it's also not God. There's a, there's a creature-creator distinction is maintained, but the relationship is not severed, put it that way. So this is the essence of the kind of metaphysics that I'm, I'm interested in recapturing. 
Um, so metaphysics is just a description of how we understand the relationship between God and the world. Between it, It's really understanding what it means for creation to be creation um, and not and not simply, you know, God is God is necessary being God is eternal. God is has a saity. The creation is uh, contingent and it is uh, has a created out of nothing at a point in time. And it is um, dependent on God. So um, these are metaphysics is and, and really, the, you know, metaphysics has almost disappeared from most systematic theologies and yeah. uh, in that's right the older systematic theologies from the 17th century up to the 19th century metaphysics is very important but when you come into the 20th century it disappears and but there are traces and remnants and these remnants have to do with uh, certain attributes of God that are often called the metaphysical attributes like simplicity and eternity and immutability um, and aseity and what you see in late 20th century systematic theology is you see theologians getting all tangled up and not being able to understand these metaphysical attributes because they don't have a more general metaphysics as a context in which to understand them. And so you get modern analytic philosophy and analytic theology, for example, doesn't know what to do with simple, uh, the divine simplicity. Yep. They, they don't understand even why it was ever there in the first place, why it was seen as important to affirm simplicity. Whereas you go back to the scholastic Protestant uh, uh, theologians and they see simplicity as absolutely essential to the to the Christian doctrine of God. It's, it's, it's almost like the basis of all the other attributes and it's so important to them. But they're working in a in the context of classical metaphysics. They are assuming that Aristotle was right about a lot of things and they are working in that milieu, and then that all changes. And at the end of the Enlightenment, the beginning of the nineteenth century, with I mean, it, it builds all the way from Descartes forward. But then, it, with Hume and Kant, are the decisive uh, moves. And after that, there's no more uh, assumption of classical realist metaphysics. It's uh, it's you've got nominalism and mechanism and and materialism. And then by the end of the nineteenth century, we're into relativism and skepticism. So. So uh, classical metaphysics has been left behind. Well, anyway, that's what metaphysics is. Um, and there's so much more to say, but, but that's, that's, that's enough. The great tradition. Well, I, um, I define the great tradition as um, the, the writings, the, the teachings of the, the Nicene fathers in the fourth century and I see a connection between the Apostles' Creed, which gets expanded in the Nicene Creed in 325 and 381, and then there's an addendum to it in 451 with the definition of Chalcedon. This is a connected tradition, Apostles, Nicene, Nice 1, Nicene 2, Chalcedon. This, this is the, the Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy of the ancient church, and I believe that that orthodoxy is rooted in and arises naturally out of the earlier church fathers' work, who themselves are expounding scripture. So the great tradition really comes from scripture. I believe the Old Testament teaches us the doctrine of God. The New Testament presupposes the Old Testament doctrine of God, and that um, that doctrine is is taught by the church fathers. It really is crystallized in the in this creedal tradition that I've spoken of, and then that creedal tradition gets passed on into the Middle Ages 
through the writings of Augustine, who is, who is, it's not that the Middle Ages are dependent on Augustine, Augustine as uh, where Augustine disagrees with other church fathers. He functions more as the one who sums up the consensus of the church fathers and passes that consensus on to the Middle Ages. And then um, there's a tradition uh, that develops through the Middle Ages that and really the, the first 43 questions of the Summa Theologia of Thomas Aquinas, that is the locus classicus of the doctrine of God because he sums up the tradition up until that point. And whereas the tradition has been primarily dependent on, on Platonism um, coming from Augustine's Christian Platonism forward, Aquinas integrates the newly uh, the, the new writings of Aristotle are now coming into the West in his century, and he integrates the best of Aristotle in. And so he gives a complete uh, statement of the doctrine of God that sums up the tradition. And then that statement of the doctrine of God is presupposed by the reformers, and it is, um, it's, it's operational in the minds of most of the, of the uh, Protestant scholastic writers. Now, after the Reformation, of course, uh, things really start to splinter and go, go off in all directions. And so both in the Roman Catholic scholastics and the Protestant scholastics, Lutheran and Calvinist, Reformed. In both cases, both traditions, Protestant and Catholic, you begin to see a split within each tradition between um, uh, one that is more Augustinian Thomist and one that is more uh, indebted to, to other people like Scotus and and. Uh, Occam and Beale and others, because in the in the Middle Ages, right after Thomas, there there is the rise of late medieval scholasticism, which is which is um, in many ways rejects key elements of of the Thomistic synthesis, and so it it's uh, it, it's it, it is it is this this nominalism of William of Occam um, is is becomes the dominant strain of of philosophy around the time of the 14th, 15th century. And so when, when you see Luther and Calvin talking against scholasticism, this is what they have in mind. They have in mind, not the Augustinian Thomas strand, but the late medieval strand of Occam and Beale, uh, which is indebted to Scotus. And so you've got voluntarism and you've got nominalism. And, and these things are, are then you know, these are controversies in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And you have, within Protestant scholasticism, you have some who follow the, the late, the Via Moderna, the late medieval scholastic tradition, and you have others who, who recover the, what they call the sounder scholastics, that is the Augustinian Thomas uh, stream of scholasticism. And so that happens, so there's a division. And then, um, and then when Arminianism arises, you know that's related to this because some of the Arminians are are choosing to follow um, streams of scholasticism which are not compatible with the Augustinian Thomas stream, and then that becomes an issue. And the same thing happens on the Catholic side with the Jesuits and and the Jansenists. And there's there are those who follow the to, the Thomistic stream and those who don't, um, and so it becomes very confused. And then alongside of that, you have the rise of the Enlightenment from the 1648 to 1804 is usually the dates for the Enlightenment, and it begins with Descartes. And there you have a move towards the rejection of, of the, the Augustinian Thomas strand completely in, in the rejection of all classical metaphysics and the rise of the new mechanical philosophy, and that leads to Galileo, to Newton, 
and and it it becomes a a very different metaphysics altogether and so the church is divided in its understanding of metaphysics and the world is developing this new mechanical philosophy and the upshot of it all is but by the time of, of the end of the enlightenment you have um you have david hume um uh actually denying the doctrine you know he's so eager to refute the traditional proofs for the existence of god um which depend on a concept of causality that he's willing to surrender the doctrine of causality in order to refute the the proofs for the existence of god but in so doing he is undermining the basis of science itself and so this leads to a huge stream of irrationality because emmanuel kant is convinced that hume is right so therefore he he wants to create a new critical philosophy that saves god and metaphysics and ethics but he is unable to do so successfully and from then on everything splinters into different streams that um there is no more unified metaphysical uh position and and things are falling apart and what i'm saying is that in this situation the church needs to should have in the 19th and early 20th century what the church needed to have done was to simply retain its nerve to nourish and develop that great tradition which is the which is which is you can trace it through the the protestant the reformed scholastics back into the middle ages to thomas to augustine and and it's the tradition that is the context for the nicene uh, the trinitarian and christological orthodoxy so you, so what, what we see in the 20th century is that evangelicals who are trying to maintain nicene trinitarianism are not able to do so because they have um they don't understand the metaphysical context and and prerequisites for that orthodoxy which have been undermined in modernity and they don't really understand where how they need to develop an alternative metaphysics to modernity in order to ground their 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 dogmatic theology and that's where we are today so the great tradition is is um is basically um what got destroyed in the enlightenment so for so we have two you know we have some pastors that listen to this and then we we have you know, people that are <clears throat> lay people that are sitting in the pew every week, you know, what, what would you say to the lay person that some of what you're talking about, it may be new to them and they want to begin like, what would your counsel be as it relates to them being able to read scripture or study scripture in conversation with the great tradition? What would your counsel be to them? Uh, I guess that the, uh, well, it's hard because the scholars have let the church down. Yeah. And and um, one way in which that has happened is that we don't have translations of the um, older works that predate the, uh, the Enlightenment. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have enough translations of good theology. So, it, it, well, I, I'll tell you what I... Uh, what I suggested to a, um, a person in my church who is uh, wanting to study theology, does not have a seminary degree, but mm -hmm. is a smart person, uh, good education, has read Grudem's Systematic Theology, and wants to go deeper in theology. So I said to him, why don't we read Boving's Reformed Dogmatics together? 
Yeah. That's what I would do. So I would either suggest, so Bavinka's got the, the one, the, 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 the little one, it's almost like a catechesis for, for a lay level. Then he's got the wonderful works of God, which is a one volume uh, systematics. And then he's got the four volume, uh, big, the big four volume set. So if, uh, Depending on your level, you can start at, at lay level, one volume or four volume in Bavink. But the reason I would suggest Bavink is, and nothing um, like, like Bavink is, Bavink is not uh, absolutely perfect, but Bavink, and he's 100 years old, but Bavink is the best we've got. And um, so, you know, I, at least he interacts with the tradition respectfully and knowledgeably. And that's so yeah. important. Um, so he he's not afraid to engage, and he knows the languages that we don't know. He is fluent in Latin, and and he knows the the post Reformation uh, works that see. This is what we need: is people who are who are fluent in Latin, who can engage the, the Reformation and post Reformation sources, and write theology in a way that will be. Um, um, interacting with that tradition and not being intimidated by feeling the need to accommodate to modern metaphysics. And, you know, because a lot of, a lot of what's wrong with theology today happened after Bavik. And so, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of bad things you just don't, you miss there. That would be my counsel is to, to go back to Bavink and then to, uh, to wait for scholars to come along and write more theology that is like Bavink only, only, um, you know, written from our perspective today and able to take into account some of the things that have happened in the meantime, but doing the same kind of thing as Bavink. If, if you ask me, what does it mean to engage the great tradition? I would say, what do what Bavink did. That's basically, mm. uh, he, he is engaging the tradition and everybody will maybe come to some different conclusions on particular issues. Fine. But, but, do the general kind of theology that he's doing in the in the reformed dogmatics. No, that's so helpful. And you know, as you were talking even earlier, and you you know, you mentioned social trinitarianism. You you know the the impact of the um, the enlightenment and um, this kind of even anti supernatural way of of reading the Bible. I I see that crisis in the pulpit as well, because it's at the seminary, you know, it's at the seminary level. What, you know, what would you say to, um, you know, and, and I think you've given us some good handles so far, but, you know, I think in terms of like, I'm a pastor, Ryan is a pastor. Um, we're preaching every week, Lord willing, we're preaching in such a way that we're able to expose our people to, um, you know, pro-Nicene theology. We're preaching in, in conversation with this great tradition that we've inherited. But what would you say to the pastors? Um, what would your encouragement be to them? If, if there's a pastor listening, maybe he's been in a seminary context where it's, it's, it's very much driven by just 20th century, the 20th century way of doing theology that the church fathers are looked at, as you said, more like Sunday school teachers and not, you know, not as people that dealt with the text seriously. What would your encouragement be to them? Well, I guess there's, there's two levels on which you can answer that question. Like if you're a pastor and you want to be a faithful pastor and preach, what should you do for yourself? And then also there's the question of how should pastors, um, 
try to get seminaries to change because really we're talking about a generational project here. It's not, yeah. it's not something that's going to happen by reading one book. Uh, it's not, it's not a matter of, uh, of just, um, it, it can't just change overnight, but as far as individual pastors are concerned, um, well, I, I think it's important to, to, to use older commentaries. So one practical suggestion that I have is to, Get yourself um, the ancient Christian commentary series that was put out by University Press. So helpful. Uh, use that. I use that every time I preach. And then the Reformation Christian commentary series that goes with it is, uh, you know, it's not finished yet, but it's excellent as well. And then I would say um, use Calvin's commentaries. Always use Calvin's commentaries. Um, you know, he, he is a model uh, expositor in many ways. And then I would say, be careful about using too many modern commentaries. Don't don't mm. overload yourself with modern commentaries. I like to use one or two. Um, I actually find that some of the expository commentaries that were written in the 20th century by people who were pastors uh, are helpful. Uh, I'm thinking here of uh, W.A. Criswell on Acts or John R. W. Stott on Romans or Ephesians. Um, these kind of commentaries are tend to be sermons, basically re, repackaged, and they're actually more helpful than most of the historical critical commentaries um, are. There are there is a place for historical critical stuff, and and you know I I I I have all kinds of commentaries. I have shelves and shelves of commentaries. I have I have ranging all the way from the most liberal to the most conservative old, new, everything. So I, I just, but if, if you're trying to preach every week, you, you can, you've got to be selective. You cannot read 28 commentaries for next Sunday. You've got to choose. And, and I think that if you start with ancient or reform, ancient and reformation Christian commentaries and Calvin and an, an expositional commentary from the modern period, and then a, a historical critical one, that's enough for, for one sermon. And, and uh, so I would say, just always keep the church fathers' interpretations in in view as you preach. That would be my my counsel. As far as the the broader question, um, seminaries have got to change. Uh, my yeah. my seminary is um, when I went there in the in in the early eighties. Um, the church history prof told me that when he got there, there were four semesters of church history: uh, ancient, medieval. Reformation and modern, and that during his time the curriculum had got shortened to church history one and two, so it was two semesters. Yep. And since I graduated, uh, I've heard now that they've gone to one semester survey of church history uh, as a requirement for the MDiv. So this they're going in the wrong direction. Seminaries need to turn around and go in the other direction, do a lot more historical theology, and emphasize. Do you know you couldn't get into Princeton? Uh, in the early 20th century without having Latin. And it was assumed that you had to read Latin. And one of the reasons why all through the 19th century, the um, post-Reformation scholastic writers didn't get translated into English was because everybody who was in who, who was in seminary was reading Latin, so they didn't need to translate them. So by the time Latin dies, dies down, the translations don't exist. So there's a we've got to encourage scholarship and encourage seminaries to encourage scholars to do that translating work, um, which will help us. 
Um, so the Reformation commentary series is very helpful in that regard. But um, yeah, seminaries have got to change. Seminaries have got to focus more on um, historical theology. And the other thing they've got to do is to get back to requiring philosophy for for uh, seminaries. Um, you used to have to have uh, the equivalent of a minor in philosophy, at least a couple of semesters of history, philosophy, and of course in logic, and of course in ethics, and of course in metaphysics, and then you were ready for seminary. And now we assume that you can come in with a Bachelor of Business Administration and you don't, you've never taken a course in philosophy in your life and you're ready to be a seminary student and understand the Nicene Creed. Well, you're not. And, and so either we have to do remedial or make it a prerequisite, but something's got to change. And even requiring philosophy is dangerous because so much philosophy today is taught in an analytic way and it's problem oriented and it starts in modernity and it doesn't really do the history of philosophy and what you need is the history of philosophy. Yeah. So uh, these are these are issues that pastors should be looking at seminaries and saying to them, you've got to do something different um, if you want to prepare people to to retain orthodoxy for another generation, because we've already gone a couple of generations without paying attention to philosophy and history. And now we've got social Trinitarianism and relational theology and all kinds of things and these are these are heresies or or fault or or bad badly phrased doctrines which are creeping into not the liberal churches but the conservative ones. Yeah. So right. so that's the problem. So I would say pastors just need to get together and put pressure on seminaries and say change your ways and become become more serious about the great tradition. That's good. What are some, and Ron, I'll let you, you know, I'll let you ask the, the last question, but I, or I at least want to make sure we even highlight some, you mentioned um, the metaphysics book you're wor- working on in this trilogy. And I know you're working on an Isaiah commentary that I'm eager, eager to read as well. But I thought before we, you maybe mentioned that um, and, and how people can maybe, you know, find you or read, I know you have a blog on Substack and, uh, and so I, I'm subscribed to that and, and see the things that you put out, but what are um who are some guys just broadly speaking some scholars theologians um that are publishing now that you might commend to people that uh that you have found particularly helpful i know you've done for instance some work with matthew barrett but who who are some guys that you see at the seminary level perhaps that are um trying to do some of this retrieval work that you're doing yeah, so as to uh, the question of who should we read, um, James Dolzell is important, and pastors should read the little book, uh, All That Is In God. Um, that's that's crucial. That That's just a very important book. Um, well, I, I, I wouldn't be, the marketing people would be mad at me if I didn't yeah. flog my, uh, my, our series. Matthew Barrett and I are editing a series called Pillars in Christian Theology, and uh, um, Christian dogmatics and with um, Broadman and Holman. And so the first one in that series is going to be um, John Fesco uh, on prolegomena. And that's going to be good. Uh, but some of the other people in that series are going to include Adonis uh, Vidu. And he should, you should read his stuff on, on the doctrine of God. Stephen Duby's work is excellent. Uh, Jesus and classical theism, this book on God in himself. Um, so Dozel, uh, Doobie and, uh, and, um, and, and Vidu and Fesco 
And Matthew Barrett's book on the Reformation is very important. And so you can learn a lot about philosophy from the book on the Reformation, and that is uh, unusual. Um, Reformation as renewal. Uh, this book is um, this book is a, a potential game changer in my opinion because it understands the Reformation not as a um, revolt against uh, the church completely, but as a call to the church to regain its true roots and to um, to to move back to a deeper and and um, and more authentic Catholicity. So basically, the rough reformers' argument is not uh, they don't they don't concede the term Catholicity to Rome. They say we are more Catholic than you, and and I think that's the only re- good reason to be a Protestant um, is to be to to believe that we are more in touch with the the great tradition than Rome is. And, and um, so this book will deal with the um, late medieval. Uh, trends that were in, 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 that were so important for, like Luther was trained in, um, uh, in in a setting in which he read as his main book Gabriel Beale, and Gabriel Beale is an alchemist and a, and a nominalist, and so what what Luther knew of Thomas Aquinas he learned through Gabriel Beale. Well, this is this is very important. I mean, when 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 Calvin rails against the scholastics, he he has in mind the faculty of the Sorbonne, who were all nominalists, who were uh, they were late medieval scholastics. So people think that that Calvin and Luther were rejecting Thomas Aquinas, but that's not true. They were in the context. That's right. It wasn't Thomas that they were railing against. It was those who were departing from Thomas. So that's why this book is very important. So, in fact, I would say that if a, a pastor wants to read a book of church history, I think they should read this one because it will help to reorient your understanding of history in a positive way. Um, so those would be my recommendations. Uh, and by the way, Matthew Barrett's writing a systematic theology, and it will be um, excellent. It will be um, um, it. it, it it's going to be a, a one that I hope contains lots of, of philosophy. Um, at least it will. If I have anything to do with it, I'm pushing you to include the philosophy. Uh, it's, it's, tra- it's a challenge because it's the one volume uh, systematic theology, which means that it can't cover everything. But he, and so he may write another philosophical book to go along with it. But but anyway, there's somebody who's doing what I'm saying we need to do in terms of recovering classical metaphysics and using it as the context for understanding orthodoxy. Well, brother, thank you for being with us. I appreciate just the, the, the kind of the succinct way we've kind of walked through some history, uh, particularly as it relates to the great tradition and philosophy. My face, the listener can't see my face, but my face lit up when you when your number one suggestion is just go read Bavink. I mean, I remember... Uh, for me, what happened was I was sitting at a lecture series, and that lecture series became the basis for the book that you just recommended by James Dozal, uh, All That Is in God. And I remember sitting there, and he quoted from this guy called Bavink. And I was thinking, hmm, recently translated, maybe I should dive into Bavink. So I picked up a recently translated version of Reformed Dogmatics and started to read, and I think what struck me and caused me to deeply appreciate uh, Bavink was I could tell without having certain categories yet I, 
could tell there was a difference in metaphysics as he talks about the doctrine of God. And so my face lit up as you said that, but I think those are just such wise and helpful suggestions, both for the people in the pew, but also for for the, the pastor. I do have one very small question before you go, and I, I don't want to hold us up, but you've answered this already, but sort of just to, to recap, if anyone is hearing us use terms like um, Catholicity or Thomas Aquinas, you know, online, uh, some people may hear, well, Thomas Aquinas is a Roman Catholic. We should avoid Roman Catholics. You know, in, in short, and you know what, you know of what I'm speaking, but in short. I didn't know. Is there a controversy that's going on that I don't know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, are we are we to, to to avoid Thomas Aquinas, or as I think you're you're articulating for us, is there benefit as he carries the tradition along for us through the through the medieval and middle age period? Yes, well, that the the controversy, and we can't get into it uh, now, but there it revolves around the terms biblicism and sectarianism and the definition of what it means to be a Baptist and what it means to be a Protestant. And um, so those are, those are things we can't go into in great depth. But let me simplify it. Um, what is wrong with Roman Catholicism? Well, what is wrong with Roman Catholicism is not that it's Catholic, but that it's Roman. And we use Catholic as the short form when we refer to, we talk about the Catholic tradition, we talk about the Catholic Church, we talk about the Catholic this and the Catholic that. We should be talking about the Roman Church and the Roman tradition. Roman Catholicism doesn't even really exist until the Council of Trent in the 1560s, in, in my view. There's a, there's a Western Catholic Church up until that point, but it isn't, it, it, it has be what is solidified like what's being challenged is that the Catholic Church in the West is determined by what the Bishop of Rome says it is. That's yeah. being challenged in the 16th century. And, it, and then when, when there's the permanent division between the, the, the two streams, uh, one division says, well, we believe that, that Catholicity means what the Bishop of Rome says it means. And that becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And then the other stream says, we believe that Catholicity is determined by the, by the tradition um, coming from Scripture through the patristics, through the medieval period, and that the Bishop of Rome doesn't get the final say in determining that, but rather, um, if anybody would get the final say, it would be councils. But uh, you can't have a council in a divided church. But the, the point is, it's not the Bishop of Rome that has the final say. Yeah. And so now the debate is, so the, the Evangelicals who say, I don't want to be Catholic, meaning I don't want to be Roman Catholic, they're conceding the word Catholic. It's like conceding the word Orthodox, like, well, they're, you know, the Eastern Orthodox are Orthodox, so I don't want to be Orthodox. No, we can't just give them that word and, and, That's right. and, and let them have it. Uh, and we can't give the Roman Church the credit for being Catholic. The, the, if the Roman Church was more Catholic, I tell you, I, I, I asked a scholar, a Roman Catholic historian of, of the 17th century, I asked him this question. I said, you know, we, we were at a conference and we'd been hearing papers and, and you know, it was, it was all Thomas Aquinas. And, and, um, and I said to him at a break, I don't understand, what I don't understand is, why does the Roman Catholic Church emphasize SCOTUS so much. 
you know, we have blessed Dun Scotus. He's not a saint, but he's blessed. And you've got within the Catholic Church, it seems like you have to you have to say that you can be Thomist or you can be Scotist, and either way you're equally Orthodox. I said that makes no sense to me, because you to be Orthodox you need to be Thomist instead of Scotist. And I said, why does the Church do this? He said, church politics. Hmm. That was the answer. In other words, he admitted that hmm. it's not logical. That that, um, that that so this this shows that the Roman Catholic Church is not strictly Catholic. It is a political um, uh, coalition of different theological positions under under the papacy. But these these theological positions don't necessarily agree with each other on fundamental issues. And so we we need to understand that we're not up against a monolithic uh, organization that teaches a an unbroken line of tradition going back to the apostles in a unified way. Catholicism, it, Roman the Roman Church is as divided as Protestantism in many ways. Uh, it's just that that's papered over by the political unity imposed from the top by the Pope, and we don't have a Pope to do that, so we look more disorganized and more divided than they are. But actually, we're both divided. So, yeah, uh, we, we want to be Roman. We want to be Catholic without being Roman. And as far as uh, Thomas Aquinas is concerned, Thomas Aquinas is not right about everything, but he's right about certain fundamental things that are very important. I always told my students that when you read the Summa Theologica, when you start out, he's the best at the beginning. And further in you go, the worse he gets. The, the, that when he gets to sacraments and church, then you've got more problems. But when he's back on basic doctrine of God and creation and providence, angels and those sorts of topics, he's excellent. And what you will find if you read Turretin and 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 Junius and and um, and and Owen and Perkins and all the great post-Reformation Protestant writers, they never dis- they disagree with Thomas on on certain things when it comes to church and you know, the issues of the Reformation, the church and the sacraments and priesthood and the Pope, but they don't disagree with Thomas on God, creation, angels, and, and, you know, Trinity and, and attributes of God, those sorts of topics. So, so I guess some people, some people are of the opinion that when, when Matthew Barrett or I say, we've got to get back to Thomas Aquinas's doctrine of God, they interpret that as, We've got to accept every single thing that Thomas Aquinas wrote as gospel truth, and we and if we disagree with him on even one point, then we're being inconsistent somehow. And I think that's just ridiculous. Uh, there's no way that we need to do that. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. And I ask because I think that's an um, unnecessary criticism of of this kind of retrieval and great tradition great tradition work that's that's happening. Boy, there's so many things we could talk about and so many more questions that Joey and I could ask. But uh, brother, uh, yeah. we just thank you for being with us and we thank you for your for your work and we're glad to be able to, to commend it to to readers. And uh, we look forward to uh, the, the future projects that you're working on. So thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm.